Welcome back everyone. Today I'm going to tell you another story from the Fenian cycle, from Irish mythology. That is the legends of Fionn the Cool and the Fianna. I've told a few of these on the podcast before, but I started this podcast a few years ago now and told most of them then, so I expect that many of you may not exactly know where I'm up to. But you don't technically need to have heard those old ones to enjoy this one. One, because I'm going to just give you some of the brief background here, and secondly, because this is a bit of a standalone story. Now, speaking kind of straight from the heart here, I love these tales. This whole set of stories around Fionn worked into a coherent whole are some of my absolute favourites. Some of that is the extended world building of them all. I really think it's best to imagine these stories as part of an extended universe, in pretty much the exact same way as, say, the Marvel Cinematic Universe we might be familiar with, but they're written over centuries by many different people. And hopefully on their own they're at least interesting, if not more so. But for me, better than that is that they combine brilliantly lots of one-off stories with an overarching plot that develops subtly throughout them, with some pretty meaty story arcs as well. Now this really means I should have been updating these stories regularly, but until I get that ever-elusive wealthy patron, it ain't happening. Anyone wanting to apply for that position, please do get in touch. So instead, let's have a recap of the salient points before we launch into this story. To continue with the previous analogy for a little, the Fenian Cycle is also like superhero franchises in that it is filled with characters who are incredibly powerful by human measure and who face opponents equally or even more dangerous. But the setting, the setting is of course very different. The place is ancient Ireland, in a time after the old gods have been driven into their barrows underground, but when their presence as the Tuatadarnan, the She, is still very much felt, most keenly when the veil between the worlds lessens. But as we've seen in other tales, and will continue to see, their influence doesn't require that. Humanity ruled small bits of the land, but the wilderness outside their little circles of firelight is vast and dangerous, crammed full of supernatural terrors. And yet humanity too has many people skilled in magics of their own. This is a medium to high fantasy setting. But do not imagine this is merely a parochial set of myths. No, indeed, very much not. For while the focus is on Ireland, this is an island which is one part of a wider, international is not quite the right word for there are no nations, but a vast world full of peoples, gods, magic and the supernatural. And while I'm sure the common folk, such as they are, may have had limited horizons, I mean they really only appear in these stories to fight and die, the main cast of characters travel as freely across Europe as any jet-setter. This isn't something I've touched on in any of the previous stories, but is key to understanding the wider Fianna tales, which are at one and the same time very particular to Ireland, set in its landscape, and yet placed very firmly within this wider supernatural or mythological world. So, to give some of the background, let's focus in on the Fianna. They are a fighting force who are notionally loyal to the High King of Ireland, to various degrees. At our story's start, this force is headed by Fionn McCool, and he is surrounded by a supporting cast who have their own backstories and miniseries. Fionn himself is skilled in basically everything. The blood of the she runs in his veins. He's an incredible warrior, a poet, and due to an encounter with a salmon of knowledge, he can suck on his thumb to give him great wisdom about events that have happened and events still to come. The supporting cast includes Gull McMorna, kind of second in command, who actually killed Fionn's father and ran the Fianna himself for some years, but accepted Fionn when he came back into the Fianna, 
and for the time being, the two work together as well as can be expected in those circumstances. Then you've got Fionn's two dogs, Bran and Shkilong, who are Fionn's cousins magically transformed, who are far smarter than your average hound, and I'm not saying dogs are stupid, and they have various supernatural powers as well. Then you've got Fionn's son, Oshin, and he's not appearing in this story, so let's skip over him. But there's a whole load more members of the Fiona to meet, and key supporting characters will be fleshed out over a number of stories. And that more or less brings us up to speed with what you need to know before we launch into today's story. A story which will help to reveal a lot more of the wider world, something which will become even more important as the cycle develops. So, all that said, let's jump into the story. Fionn McCool and the Lad of the Skins. We start somewhere else, maybe during the time when Cool headed the Fiona, maybe earlier than that, but a few decades ago from the ever-moving present. Then two men had entered the forge. It's hard to believe it was just a regular forge, but it looked like one. This was the place where the tools that worked the land were fashioned, beating back the wilds, forging civilizations and also the place where was made the iron weapons that brought such death and destruction. And yes, that was civilization too. This was a special place, a sacred place, even a magical place. The fires were cool that day, but a great heat raged in that room nonetheless as the rivals regarded each other. The two men entered the forge together by one of the two great doors to that place and she entered by the other. All three of them stood in the centre of the room for just an instant. One liminal moment. Liminal in the original meaning of the word, for this was a moment of transition. The old world where each had known the other as good companions was ending. Now the future would be determined, could change in this instant. Here fates were born. At this point in time there was no longer the three of them who had entered, but they had not yet become those who would leave. Liminal. And for that instant where they all stood together, time slowed and stood with them, still. And then the moment passed. One man exited by one door, his erstwhile companion by the other. She waited there for the briefest of seconds, and then chose a door and followed one of the men out. And that made all the difference. Several decades pass. Fionn McCool is now leader of the Fina, and Ireland at that moment was as calm as it was ever likely to be, given at least the ever-present threat from all directions that the Fenians were always on guard against. And with no opportunity to kill men, monsters or gods, the Fiano were even able to relax, relax in their usual fashion, by killing lots of animals instead. This did mean they were occupied, provide them with valuable protein, and keep their training for dealing out extreme violence well honed. Which was necessary. So it kind of makes sense. And they also had a great time doing it. Now, Fionn was surrounded by a number of key senior figures in his leadership. We'll come to them all in time, but for this story, the only one who'll play a part is Conan. Conan McMorna. Or, much more often, Bald Conan. 
because the Fianna really liked nicknames. Now he was brother of Gull McMorna, because when Gull had given up his leadership to Fionn, he had of course brought his clansmen under Fionn's leadership as well. And because they respected him so much, they had supported this surprising turn of events. And Conan was, I think, proper henchman material. Bald and fat and quite often an oafish, brusque character. All muscle, where the muscle is not so much a finely chiselled Adonis, but a vast bulk of fleshy strength with a side order of quick to anger and hold the subtlety. Generously, he's an Obelix kind of figure, and like Obelix, he finds himself the butt of more jokes than he'd like. But yet he retained his high up position as one of the leading members of the Fianna, due not to nepotism, for Gull and Fionn did not suffer fools lightly, whoever they were, but because of the undeniable combat abilities that came of his form, because of his unwavering dedication to his brother and transferring that over to Fionn, and because at times his tendency to speak his mind to whoever he may came in handy. And right now, bald Conan was loudly telling Fionn exactly what he thought. Get rid of him, get rid of him now, or I tell you... He wagged a sausage-sized finger in Fionn's face. He'll be the death of us, he will. What's someone like him doing here with us, I ask you? No good'll come of it, you hear me? Not a bit of it. You say that about everyone who wants to join up with us, said Fionn. Either they're not good enough, or they're too good. Jealous, are you? Ugh, bellowed Conan in frustration. Maybe I'm right, Fionn. A lot of strange people want to join up with us. And that was true enough. A disproportionate number of stories of the Fianna start with someone turning up, asking to join, and things really kicking off from there. They hadn't kicked off right now, but Conan knew it was a matter of when, not if. For the eager new recruit that no one had asked for this time around had arrived at the White Hill of Almu two days ago rocked up to Fionn and offered to join. A large man, notable in his dress, for he was clad head to toe in animal hides, a hood of skins pulled over his head. With a breezy confidence usually reserved for the soon-to-be-dead, he'd strolled into camp, located Fionn, and volunteered his services to the Fianna for a year and a day. His requirements in return for this were not quite modest, but unusual. Just room and board for the time for him, Owen for his wife, and that he would have the honour of eating with Fionn himself. And in return, he said, he would serve faithfully and ably. There were no background checks, no right to work or DBS here. The man didn't even give his name. Though the Fianna didn't have to worry about that, for an obvious nickname suggested itself and soon stuck. The Lad of the Skins, they called him. Now Fionn knew nothing about this man, but he could tell that this was no regular fellow. In fact, his form of wisdom didn't allow him to fully see the past or future of this man, as it might others, which was both quite convenient for the plot and intrigued Fionn. And if he had been anybody else, he might have recognised something like fear arise in him when he discovered that. But he didn't really know that feeling. It was just a minor discomfort, scratching from deep within his hero's psyche. Now, while the pay the man demanded was seemingly low, eating with the head of the Fianna was worth far, far more. And had Fionn believed the lad of the skins had been a regular man, he'd have been laughed out of there. But Fionn did not. So Fionn had not asked for his background, nor the reasons he was so keen to join up. He had simply decided to entertain his proposal by testing the mettle of this man. He had invited him to join them on the hunt the next day, an offer which the lad of the skins 
had gracefully accepted. The next day dawned and the FINA senior leadership management team assembled for their team building exercise early in the morning. And the lad of the skins met them there. But he came with his own terms for the hunt. Very unusual terms indeed that he laid down to them. I will go hunting, yes, he told Fionn McCool. In a calm, confident, assured way in which no man had ever told Fionn McCool anything. The lad gestured out at the wild Irish country. I will hunt, but I will do so on my own, and you go with your people, and we'll divide this land between us. One part for me, and one part for you, making clear that you meant all of the Fianna. Oh, and which part will you have? asked Fionn, regarding the landscape. The ridges and the glens, perhaps? No, no, I will take the boggy wetlands with all their dangers and bad hunting. You may go to the ridges where the easy hunting is. The words were delivered with such confidence, but no hint of sarcasm or mocking. So while he might have wanted to think, what a smug bastard, Fionn didn't believe the man was intentionally acting rudely. Rather, he was bluntly expressing how he believed it was to be. It was a disconcerting start to the day, but Fionn accepted the lad's offer. He went off in the direction of the bog, and the rest of them climbed up to the ridges where there were those prime hunting grounds. Soon the lad was forgotten, and the men, the women and the many dogs of the Fianna revelled in the ecstasy of the hunt. Caught up in the frenetic bloody activity, hours rushed by in chase after chase. Eventually, as the daylight waned, the Fianna triumphantly, joyfully returned to the hill of Almu, carrying the spoils of their victory, singing songs, blowing horns and telling tales of the deeds of the day just gone by. Fionn was at the back of them, so he wasn't the first to see it. But he felt the hush flow from the men in front, boastful anecdotes cut off mid-sentence as the eyes of all fell upon the sight that greeted them. Now it was not that the Fianna were squeamish, I hope that's implicit in my descriptions of their preferred activities, indeed that day they carried with them the bodies of many animals that they would feast on that night. Everyone there was a veteran of many battles, had inflicted great cruelties on their enemies and seen much barbarity. These were people used to death, bloodshed and brutality. And the tableau that was laid out in front of them wasn't even that gruesome compared to, say, the aftermath of a battlefield when the flies and crows had descended. But bodies lay in great heaps on the ground, bodies of deer and boar and rabbits and fowl, necks broken, skulls smashed, still and silent they lay, covering the grass, corpses piled upon corpses. There were perhaps as many animals in front of them as the Fianna collectively were carrying with them. A great eating this would be, for so many for so long. Surely a bountiful harvest for the Fianna, for their families, for their community. This was a good thing. And yet, when they looked upon the figure in the centre of it all, clad in animal skins, waiting for them, surrounded by that fortune of death, that fortune which 
he could not have possibly killed all by himself, could he? And if he had, he could not have possibly brought them all here. Well, when they gazed upon him, an eerie hush had taken a hold of them, and deep within them, they felt something wrong. Fionn made his way to the front of the group. The lad of the skins came forward to greet him with a completely polite, Good hunting, Fionn. May I serve you now? There was no hint of menace, seemingly no awareness of the effect of his impossible slaughter on the people of the Fiona. And how could any leader refuse the service of a man who could do that? And so, despite the ill feeling that was clearly in the air, Fionn had accepted the lad of the skins' offer to join the Fiona. A few days had passed. Fionn had been introduced to the lad's pleasant wife and provided quarters for her as promised and the lad of the skins had joined the Fiona. And now bald Conan was berating Fionn. I'm not jealous, Fionn. There's just something wrong here. Look, Conan, he's better to have fighting for the Fiona than anywhere else, said Fionn. You mark my words, Fionn. No good can come of this. And as much as Fionn generally liked to ignore what Conan had to say, there was truth here. The mighty wise hero snapped. Okay, so say I wanted to send him away. I've agreed. What should I do now? Go back on it? Oh no, sorry I said you can join. Actually, just piss off, would you? I can't do that by reason of honour or practicality. And Conan the Bald responded with one of those snippets of insight that came despite all his boorishness and his temper. Well, you're in charge of him. Why don't you send him off on a task of some kind? Something, I don't know, ridiculous. Extreme. And Conan fought for a moment before finally settling on. Say you wish him to go to the palace of the King of the Floods, find the cauldron of abundance, you know, the cauldron, the one that always fills with meat, and tell him to bring it back to us. Himself? asked Fionn. Yes, said Conan. That's the point. Fionn mulled it over. Steal the King of the Floods' cauldron. It was an impossible ask. He would be in effect sentencing to death this man who had only ever shown him goodwill. Just because why? Because he, because he creeped him out? Because the thumb couldn't tell him what to do? Because bald Conan had said so? It's up to you, Fionn, you're the leader. But mark my words, should you not, a great misfortune will fall on us all. And here we see a side of Fionn we have perhaps not before for he has certainly committed violence, but only in response to violence committed against him. He has even been forgiving to those who killed his father. But here was a situation where there was no immediate threat, just a feeling of wrongness, and yet he still considered ordering one strange man to his death. Now I do think it's likely that Fionn believed the skin-wearing man might refuse, and then he might leave of his own accord or be expelled from the Fiona, using this refusal as an excuse. But when Fionn went to him with this proposition, this ridiculous, outlandish, clearly utterly absurd and unreasonable proposition, not far off asking him to pluck the stars from the sky, well, the lad of the skins asked a few questions to ensure he understood, and then said, Well, I am in your service, Fionn, so I will of course do that. He didn't ask why the rest of the Fiona were not accompanying him and he didn't ask what right Fionn had to this magical cauldron of abundance, 
one of the greatest enchanted artefacts in the whole world. He simply left. And when he did, Conan and many of the Fianna who had been less forward about saying it, breathed a sigh of relief. But Fionn couldn't quite share in it. The wife of the Lad of the Skins was still housed by the Fianna, and Fionn was very apprehensive around her, worried about what would happen when the day came when he would have to tell her to leave. Don't worry, Fionn, said bald Conan. You did the right thing, he's gone, it needed to happen. And when he doesn't return, well, she can mourn and pick a new husband. It's the lot of a wife of one of the Fianna, and that's the end of this, and no one got hurt, he said, omitting the Lad of the Skins from that, of course. The Lad of the Skins, who upon receiving the orders for this hastily contrived suicide mission, had made straight for the shore, and it was probably good for all the members of the Fianna's nerves that they didn't see what he did next. For he looked around for a moment until he saw two sticks lying on the beach. He took one up in each hand, crossed one over the other, and then casually tossed them out into the sea. And as the sticks flew through the air, they somehow transformed into a full sailing ship, the very finest sailing ship that the technology of the time could create. That most advanced ship in all of Ireland fell into the ocean with a splash and the lad of the skins leapt from the shore straight into it. And then off he set for the palace of the king of the floods. As he did, he could hear the sprouting of the whales, the whistling of eels, the calling of the gulls, and the roar of the wind pushing him on. Now, as narrator, I'm just going to jump in for a moment to not answer a question you might be thinking of at this point, which is, who is the King of the Floods? And it's a very good question, and I'm not answering it because we don't know. And as the story goes on, you'll see we will meet the King of the Floods, but his ultimate kind of place within the universe, what kind of being he is, is unexplained. And this mystery ties into what I was talking about at the start of the episode that a number of Fenian stories hint at a wider magical supernatural world which our point-of-view characters are clearly aware of, which they interact with, but which are never fleshed out and explained in the same detail the supernatural races that are native to Ireland, or at least have come to it at some point, are. He might be human, he might be something similar to the she, or, and my own personal feelings on the matter, he's something else different and undefined. What will become apparent is that he is a powerful magical ruler of a land far away from Ireland. Whether the cauldron he possesses, and which they have sent the Lad of the Skins after, is the same that the erstwhile leader of the Tudor Darnan, the Dagda, carried, is unclear. It possibly, if that was the case, that might be why Fionn wants it back in Ireland where it once was, and it might even be the reason he knows about it. But if that was the case, the events between the death of the Dagda, which I haven't covered on the podcast but might do at some point, and that cauldron getting to the King of the Floods are a complete mystery. Where he rules is also a complete mystery. It's somewhere across the sea, far away, certainly. And that's about all we know about the King of the Floods. The King of the Floods, whose palace the Lad of the Skins' magical ship, piloted solely by himself, was now approaching. 
the island of the palace was surrounded by vessels. Belonging to him or coming from across the world, I as narrator am ignorant on this as I am on pretty much all other matters connected to this figure. But the ships were there. So many was there that there was no way for the lad of the skins boat to dock. So he simply brought his vessel to anchor as close in as he could, and with the kind of flagrant disregard for trespass law and of basic manners that would come to characterise his visit to this place, he simply leapt from ship to ship until he reached the shore. He'd arrived at a time of great celebration, throngs of people were gathered around the palace, and the lad of the skins couldn't get close. He waited a while, a while which, judging from his character I think was probably a good 5-10 to ten seconds, before calling out in a booming voice that carried itself across all the noise of chatter and laughter to come to rest in every ear, powerful enough to provoke a hush amongst the crowd. And the words he spoke were thus. What an ill-mannered house I find this to be, to not offer a stranger a welcome, nor even a bit of food. And listen to the unashamed gall of these words, the sheer brass balls, to accuse the king of the floods of breaking the rules of hospitality when the lad of the skins intended to violate them in a much more serious way. And a voice spoke from the quieted masses, a rumbling deep voice that may have been accompanied by a faint whiff of brine, but one which responded to this frankly outrageous criticism with the most reasonableness and contrition. Welcome, stranger, said the king of the floods. You have my sincerest apologies come forward, and here you may eat your fill from this cauldron. And as the crowd parted to let the animal-hide-clad man through, the king of the floods produced the great cauldron of plenty, which could feed the world, and he offered it to this stranger. Perhaps the king was surprised at just how easily the man took it from his hands, how light it appeared to be to him. The lad of the skins smiled. And he turned, cauldron in hand, and with a speed somewhere between that of a champion racehorse and the flash, he fled from the hall. Back he bound across the boats until he reached his own, where he put down the magical cauldron he had acquired so easily, over which so many lusted, a cauldron which could save so many lives or give so much power to him who controlled it. And he turned. He'd been so fast he had to wait before the King of the Floods and his soldiers emerged from the palace. Now you might be thinking, and I certainly was, how dishonourable of him, to call them out on their hosting and then steal from them. What a low act, proper tricks to God at their most base is this. Breaking conventions, achieving goals simply by lying in cultures where lying was so taboo. Outright blatant thievery. And surprisingly, such thoughts were also occurring to the lad of the skins. What was he doing? Just stealing? A dishonest thief? There was no honour in this. What kind of person had he become? No, no, this wouldn't do. And for a moment, a light shines from above as we see him consider his actions. An uplifting string piece is played as we feel his heart change for the better. He's going to be good. He's going to be honourable. And then a shadow falls across his face. The music deepens and becomes ominous. A horrible smile spreads across the face of the Lad of the Skins. He'd win it honourably. He bounds back across the ships again. The soldiers of the King of the Floods line up against him. And the Lad of the Skins leaps into their midst, hood falling down as he does so. 
was finished, there was not a sound in that once bustling palace. Not everyone who had been in the crowd was now stacked in the neat piles of bodies that now surrounded the palace, much like those corpses of game animals that had so unnerved the Fianna. For some of them had fled. The King of Floods had been amongst them. But nevertheless, there were a lot of corpses in those piles. Now he had fought for it. No one could say he had taken the cauldron dishonourably. He had acquired it in combat. Morally, he was completely sound. The flies and the crows were descending onto the heaps of meat that had recently been people, as the lad of the skins calmly left the palace of the King of the Floods. He practically ambled across the cruelest boats bobbing in the waves until he arrived at his own. There was the cauldron. And he set off on his journey back to Ireland. As he arrived, he could hear the spouting of whales, the calling of gulls, the whistling of eels and the roar of the wind welcoming him. He stepped ashore, touched his hand to his ship, which promptly transformed back into the two sticks from which he had made it. They fell to the ground and the lad of the skins left them behind as he returned to Fion and the Fiona. They were very surprised to see him back so soon. In fact, when Conan set eyes on him, he actually delivered a derisive snort. He hasn't done it, he's come back for something. For the distances involved and the couple of days, it didn't make any sense. And Conan's blood ran cold as the lad swung the cauldron from off his back where it had been concealed. Fion muttered under his breath. No way, no way, no way. The lad of the skins placed it in front of Fion. I have done as you ordered. And stuttering. Fionn thanked him. He knew straight away that this was the right cauldron. His magical thumb could tell him that much, at least. But of course they had to try it out, and try it out they did. A great feast was held, and the delicious meat that kept coming out of that cauldron had never been a part of any animal. On and on it came until every belly was filled. Quick aside, I wonder, does this mean that the meat from the cauldron is vegan? Probably. I mean, we need to know more about the cauldron's workings to really answer that question, I suppose. For instance, is it linked to a Rick and Morty-style pocket universe where time moves at a different speed, animals grow and are slaughtered and are somehow put into it to arrive in our dimension at a rate sufficient to meet the needs of the Fianna? Or does it literally create new matter out of nothing? Or perhaps does it rearrange the fundamental parts of atoms in the air to be something that perfectly replicates meat? Is it drawing from another time period? Yes, and obviously this is all kind of silly nonsense when the answer is really, it's magic. But if I was going to guess, I would say, yes, it's vegan. So, very ethical consumption then. I mean, ethical if it hadn't been stolen and lots of people murdered to bring it to them. I have no idea whether any of the Fianna were vegan, by the way, but on balance, they probably weren't. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside. During the feast, Fionn again extended his thanks to the Lad of the Skins. But what was he going to do now? He let the lad return to his wife for a bit while he mulled it over. For her part, she was as delighted to see him back as the Fianna were unsettled. Though, to be fair, they were slightly less unsettled now that they had a magical cauldron and the lad of the skins didn't seem to be doing anything really untoward towards them, at least. 
Amongst all the unknowns, it is difficult to know if the lad understood just how completely he outclassed the greatest heroes of the land and their mortal enemies alike. I don't think he was mocking, but neither could he be completely unaware of their strange, uncomfortable reactions to him, humbly serving Fionn despite the power to do everything that he had done. There was clearly a lot more going on here, for he had a history, and why exactly he was hiding amongst the Fiona, no one knew, but it was becoming increasingly clear that hiding amongst them he was. Now despite the protestations of bald Conan, who wanted to send him away on more perilous tasks, Fionn decided that he was just going to accept the Lad of the Skins now, and see what happened. There was a year to go, well less, almost by a full week now, so that was all, it wasn't long, and having such a warrior amongst them could hardly be seen as bad for Ireland, and they had the cauldron. The lad deserved to stay. Another aside by the way, Fionn's possession of things like the cauldron and the magic bag mentioned in the Boyhood of Fionn episodes is another reason why it's wrong to think of these as just a regular group of people. The Fiona are mid-level D&D adventurers, or standard superheroes at least, with powerful magical artefacts, superhuman skills and strength, and many of them have their own personal knowledge of spells and other supernatural abilities to boot. Technically human, but with some significant advantages over the man on the Clapham Omnibus. Anyway, you probably don't care about that. What you might be thinking, like me when I read this story, is... Okay, how are they going to survive with this seemingly loyal but incredibly dangerous annihilation machine now within their ranks for a whole year, especially given Conan's warnings about what would happen? How will this play out? And that's totally where I expected this story to go at least. But well, here is a funny thing. I've remarked before on the tendency of prophecies uttered in stories to come true with unwavering precision, unless great deeds are done to undo them. And even then they end up manifesting in some unlikely wordplay kind of way in which they could be twisted to mean something different. And in general this is true of Irish mythology as it is of other mythologies. I'll tell you of Queen Maeve's sons one day. And yet, Bald Conan's assertion that should the Lad of the Skins be allowed to stay he would doom the Fianna, it came to naught. The Lad of the Skins stayed with the Fianna for the rest of the year and nothing of note happened. They certainly weren't doomed nor were they particularly rewarded. It seems like the man discovered the art of keeping a low profile, or Fionn effectively sidelined him without invoking his wrath, or a bit of both. And there was no real reason why the warning didn't come true, Conan was simply wrong, and outside of a story that would make sense, it's just unusual. For Fionn had felt it too, and they'd both been wrong. And that worry, the whole inciting incident for everything that happens with the King of the Floods, well, it comes to nothing. It feels like they didn't need to send him off to the King of the Floods at all. So, the year was up, Fionn thanked the Lad of the Skins for his service, and as a bonus, Fionn got to keep the cauldron. The man and his wife decided to stay local though, and Fionn was happy enough to have them, though of course Conan still disagreed, wanting him gone. But even his own brother Gull was relatively sanguine about the whole affair by now. A friendly, near deity level person living nearby, it was hard to convincingly argue that this was a genuinely bad thing. And a few more months passed. Fionn was washing himself at the well. You might think a man such as him was beyond such things, had water brought to him. But he was an active hands-on kind of leader, and given his background living in the forest like some kind of Ewok, no, not, not that, something else forestry, it wasn't too surprising really. 
and presumably he didn't even have to do much cooking or even hunt these days, given the cauldron of plenty that they now had. So he was washing himself merrily when the waters in the well moved. The waters which should be still rippled and ran in ways that were quite impossible. And as Fionn watched, first with intrigue, then with some concern, his hands reaching for weapons, the waters formed themselves into the crudest approximation of a mouth. Fionn, son of Cool, the king of the floods has found you. Give the cauldron back or prepare to face him in battle. Its message delivered, the mouth collapsed back into the water and the well was still again. This was bad. Now, I happen to think that that was really quite a reasonable offer. Just give back what you stole in a hideously violent manner and we'll call it quits without any other restitution seems more than fair, very reasonable. But Fionn, who had ordered the cauldron stolen so maybe wasn't entirely the morally upstanding hero we have seen so far, well, Fionn didn't quite see it that way. He would not give it back but that would mean the King of the Floods was going to come for him with all his mighty armies. And for a moment, that worried him. But, well, he thought, didn't they have a friend who was already quite proven against such armies? Those exact forces, in fact. Why, yes, they did. So Fionn went to seek out the Lad of the Skins. He went on his own, for this rested with him, not the rest of the Fiona. And he certainly didn't want any I-told-you-sos from a certain bald Conan. He found the man easily, still clad in the animal skins that gave him his name. I do hope he had two sets, or at least washed it very regularly. Anyway, him and his wife had made a home and were living relatively simple lives in Ireland. Simple relative to the lad of the skins' godlike powers, I mean. He explained his problem, what the well water had said, and the lad listened and then... He gave a... Ooh, I'm sorry, Fionn. You know I'd love to help, but... He raised his hands in that gesture of nothing to be done. Well, I served you for a year and a day, and that time is up now. I don't ask you as one of my men, said Fionn. I ask you as a friend, and I will pay you most handsomely, the wages of three men for a year. Ah, it's not me, you see, it's my wife. For now I have served my time, she won't have me leave again. For there were strange rules that governed the decisions and the life of the lad of the skins. Rules which seemed very particular and confusing and are never really explained to Fionn or to us, the audience. But there were rules created by some combination of magic, fate and prophecy intertwining in a matrix of enchanted restrictions that bound the life of the Lad of the Skins on a particular and limited trajectory. And this having to obey his wife was apparently one of them. Now, Fionn was diplomatic. If this had been one of his own men, he might have questioned whether a man was really under the control of his wife he quite possibly assumed the Lad of the Skins was giving him an excuse when it was he who wished not to act, a rather contrived excuse at that. So he instead emphasised what would happen if the armies of the King of the Floods reached Ireland, and wondered if the man's wife could perhaps be reasoned with given the slaughter that would occur, the deaths of men, brave men from all five provinces, a struggle that would leave children without fathers and mothers, a land at the mercy of this foreign, otherworldly force. Would this woman really stop the Lad of the Skins, preventing all of this? By the way, we should not lose sight of the fact here that neither of them considered giving back the cauldron. Oh, no, no, no. Apparently an unthinkable option for these two 
definitely good guys, who had already stolen the cauldron and in doing so created a lot of new orphans. He mulled it over, and it turned out that the wife Lime was no excuse. Fionn, while she is the love of my life, I doubt she will be swayed by such arguments. For while she loves me more than anyone, she is loath to put me in danger. I know that. Okay, listeners, I'm going to level with you here. The wife in the tale is going to remain unnamed and known only by her relation to two men, the lad of the skins and her father. I'm sorry about that. I could have kind of given her a name, but that's the way it is, so you'll just have to deal with that, I'm afraid. Sorry. And then Fionn came out of it. Can't you just ignore her? Fionn, a wise man, never ignores his wife but it would take an ignorant man indeed to ignore the daughter of Mananon MacLear. The daughter of Mananon MacLear? Fionn's blood ran cold. Mananon MacLear, god of the sea, a figure perhaps even more imposing than the king of the flood, a being something like the Tuatadarnan, often said to have been one of them, but that was in times past, for while they were contained within the she, to a greater or lesser extent, but contained, Mananon at the time of Fionn was still a force within the world, a great power to be reckoned with in the seas around Ireland. And the lad of the skins was married to his daughter, who the Fianna had been playing host to for a year and a bit, which was some news to Fionn, and not the welcome kind. Fionn was taken aback. This was something else. Maybe he'd have to give back the cauldron? But the lad of the skins was thinking... Okay, so there is a way. For my wife is under a gesh. She cannot refuse a request made on Friday night at midnight when she is combing her hair. If you ask her then to let me go, I shall come with you to the palace of the King of the Floods and we will see to this ultimatum of his. Okay, thank you for volunteering that information, said Fionn. Let me just check that I've got this right. I have to go to your wife on Friday... At midnight exactly, sneak into her room or something while she's combing her hair and say, Will you let the lad of the skins go with me to fight the king of the floods? Yep, said the lad of the skins. You've got it. All right, said Vion. Let's do that then. So much to unpack here. This story is apparently more aside than story. So a gesh, as Fionn was aware, was a kind of magical rule. It didn't have to strictly be magical, it could just be honour-based, but these things get awfully specific and crop up a lot in Irish myths and in Fionn's world. Exactly how they worked, why they were so specific, how people got them, well, that changed. Sometimes they could kind of be curses, but a lot of the time it wasn't clear. But if a gesh was placed, then you'll find that sooner or later it would usually be broken. The conditions met, and tragedy befall, or in the case of this one, the lad of the skin's wife would apparently have to grant Fionn's wish. Maybe she just shouldn't have brushed her hair on Friday nights at midnight. The other thing to unpack is, of course, that the lad of the skin so easily betrays his wife's secrets, which does not seem very healthy for their marriage. But clearly he genuinely cared about Fionn, and Fionn not having to give back the cauldron. And I won't bore you with the trivial details. Fionn went at the allotted time, found the wife of the lad of the skins as she brushed her hair, this daughter of Mananan who was far more than a simple human. 
and he asked permission for the lad to go with him to battle the King of the Floods. She turned to him, and I do not know whether her eyes burned with rage, or whether a great sadness watched over her, or a combination of the two. But she said words that should have had Fionn worried. You have asked now, and you know that I cannot refuse your requests. But Fionn McCool, I ask you to promise me this in return. You must bring him back to me. Of course, we will return as soon as we are done. Fionn, you must bring him back to me, alive or dead, in any state that he is. I don't want you to think that I won't be able to gaze upon him, whatever has been done to him. Bring him, what remains of him, back to me, all of him. And at that, yes, Fionn did begin to worry. But he accepted, graciously thanked Manannan's daughter for her agreement, extracted at duress, and he left. And the very next day, he and the lad of the skins went to the shore. And this time Fionn witnessed, as the man picked up two pieces of wood again, threw them into the sea, and as they flew through the air, they quite impossibly formed a fine boat. The two stepped aboard the vessel and set off over the oceans for the palace of the King of the Floods. And as they did, they could hear the spouting of whales, the whistling of eels, the calling of gulls, and the roar of the wind pushing them on. Now considering the words of the wife, as Fionn was, and you might be also, you might be thinking that this was not going to go quite as smoothly for the lad of the skins as last time. But you would be wrong. A reminder once again before I describe the scene that plays out next, that all the King of the Floods was asking for was the cauldron Fionn and the lad had stolen from him be returned. That was all. The lad and Fionn arrived at the palace, and Fionn McCool, the great hero, stood back and witnessed firsthand the hideous destruction wrought by the lad of the skins. He became there some great avatar of death and violence. Blood spurted, bones cracked, bodies fell, the screams of the dying filled the air. All the armies of the King of the Floods murdered with relentless savagery, a whirlwind of slaughter. It was not a fight, it was a massacre on a grand scale. And not all of those men lined up to fight their murderous opponent. They saw what was happening and they ran. But this time the Lad of the Skins chased each and every one of them down. And at its end this mayhem was chillingly contrasted with the obsessive neatness by which the Lad of the Skins separated the heads, weapons and rest of the bodies into three piles. And Fionn McCool stood by and Until finally the lad went into the palace and came out holding the King of the Floods under one arm and his Queen under the other. The King of the Floods, whoever, whatever he was, was regretting his totally justified threat to Fionn now, but it was too late for him. The lad of the skins, with an unnecessary cruelty that was so typical of him, smashed the King and the Queen against each other, again and again, bones and flesh crushed one another. The two screamed in agony as they were battered against each other, again and again. It went on all too long. But eventually, the bloodied mess of flesh and bone that had been people fell silent. The lad of the skins dropped what remained of the bodies in front of him, and he looked around at the apocalyptic scene with a businesslike air, with the sense of a job well done. 
and that was that. And as the flies and the crows again descended, the lad of the skins and Fion set off back for Ireland. What was going through Fion's mind when all this was happening has gone unrecorded, and I dearly wish it had not, for such would surely give an important insight into his character. For in many ways I want to give him a reprieve here. The lad was clearly very powerful, it wasn't as if Fion could have stopped him. And I want to know that he found some bit of this awful. But really, it was him who plotted the theft, him who had refused to give back the cauldron, who had brought the lad of the skin here, and who had not raised even the mildest objection to the nightmare that had played out before him. Perhaps it was because the King of the Flood and his people were not quite human, and Fion had good reason to hate the she and the ilk. It's the only tiny thread of an explanation I can find that defends Fionn's character as anything but utterly monstrous. And I don't really believe it. It turned out that the daughter of Manan and Maclear had no reason to worry about the state of the lad of the skin's body, for he had ne'er a scratch on him as the two sailed in that magical boat. Despite its supernatural speed, the journey still took a couple of days, and he was at the start of the second day when they spotted a sail on the horizon. a vessel making rapidly towards them, and upon sighting that, the demeanour of the Lad of the Skins changed instantly, and for the very first time Fionn saw worry darken the man's face. Fionn McCool wasn't scared of much, but he was scared of whoever was in this boat. For someone he'd seen just do the things he'd seen, for him to be afraid, whatever was on that ship was something truly terrible. Without prompting, out it came from the Lad of the Skins. That is the ship of the one they call Londu, the Blackbird. He has found me. Fionn didn't ask, but the Lad wanted to tell him a little bit more. I know, for all of Ireland knows, that you were once in love, Fionn, and that your wife was taken from you. And I know that should you be able to have revenge upon the man who took her from you, you would not hesitate to deal out the most brutal revenge you could. And in that vessel is a man who feels the same way about me, that I took his love. Though the circumstances were, of course, very different. For she chose me. But that's never been good enough for him. A flashback to the opening scene of this episode, the two men in that forge. They had made a pact. All three of them go in, and she would follow one of them out. And she had chosen to follow Kirach, the man who had become the Lad of the Skins. And Londu had been left all alone. As the ship came closer to them, Fionn desperately wanted to prepare to face this opponent. He was a fighter and a leader. It was what he did. But of course, he couldn't, for he was insignificant. Understanding of this concept did not come to him easy. A boy who had been raised as a virtual superhero, who had overcome all opponents raised against him. He knew defeat, yes, at the hands of the she, though admittedly even they wouldn't face him head on. But this wasn't like that. Here he was simply nothing and nobody, because this was not really his story. 
He is just an observer. This entire story isn't his. And Londu spoke. I have chased you across this world, Kirtak, son of the King of Pleasure, and now I have found you. Today, this ends. Now, given everything the Lad of the Skins has done, I'm tempted to feel like even if he wasn't doing it for the right reasons, Londu, Blackbird, might at least not be the bad guy here. Well, I mean, apart from apparently not understanding a woman's right to choose, which is actually pretty bad now I think about it. Okay, so these were both terrible people who were about to have a massive fight. It's like that day when two of your secondary school bullies square up to each other to prove who's the cock of the playground, and as long as you stay out of the way, you know it's going to end just fine for you. Londu leapt into the boat, and spear in hand he went for Kirtak. But the attacker wasn't simply to have it all his own way. He was not superior to his love rival, and the lad of the skins produced his own weapon, and the two clashed. And unlike with every other opponent Fionn had seen the lad of the skins mercilessly dispatch, Londu did not go down at the first powerful stroke. Yes, he was knocked backwards, and he staggered, but as he did so, his form shifted. Now he was older, larger, to no obvious advantage, but he steadied himself and then made for the lad of the skins again with a roar of anger. And the lad changed himself as he battered away his opponent's ferocious strokes, seeming to grow older in front of Fionn's eyes. Fionn was no stranger to transformations of course, but the speed of these was something else as Londu changed again and again, his weapon falling to the floor. Kirtak changed as well to match his opponent's form, even though it gave him no advantage to do so and the two snarled at each other as they aged up with every bite of tooth and rip of claw. Blood poured out of them now, as their forms continued to flow and to change, matching each other. This was nothing like Fionn had ever seen before, and he stood uselessly by as the two fought this duel with no rules that he understood. They became calves growing into bulls, foals growing into stallions, all the while raining down blow upon blow on each other. The deck of the ship ran red with it, Teeth were knocked out, bones shattered as shapes changed, faster and faster. Two birds now soared above the ship, their sharp vicious talons ripping feathers from one another and shrieking. And then the birds were whirling and screaming as they held tightly onto each other, falling from the sky down, down onto the deck which they hit with an almighty crash. And they lay there, smashed and perfectly still. Fionn waited a long while on that gentle sea, listening to the lapping of the waves, the boat rocking under him, the bright sun glinting off the claret-smeared deck. Eventually he dared to move. When he finally did, the bodies remained still. Fionn reached down and tentatively picked up the bird that was Londu. And when it didn't writhe and change in his hand, well, Fionn brought his arm back behind him, and then threw the bird far, far out into the ocean. There was a splash, and then it was gone. But he remembered the words of the lad of the skin's wife. Bring him back in any state. And so he carefully wrapped the other bird in a piece of leather, and he sailed the magical boat back to Ireland, or it sailed itself, or something. And as he did so, he could hear the spouting of the whales, the whistling of the eels, the calling of the gulls, and the roar of the wind.
Back in Ireland, Fionn took the body of the bird to the lad of the skin's wife. Truth be told, he was fearful. This had been his idea after all. He had made her give her permission. And if they hadn't gone, then maybe this would never have happened. But as it was, she largely ignored Fionn, as is his proper place as a bit player in all of this. She took the transformed body of her late husband off of him and cradled the bird gently, looking down at it with such utter sadness. And she wept. I imagine Fionn stood there awkwardly, not wanting to risk trying to comfort this woman with her unknown yet surely immense powers, nor wanting to leave. Eventually, through her tears, she asked, You have the boat still? Yes? Good. And with scarce another word for him, she took off in that boat, taking the body of the bird that had been her husband with her. And she left Ireland behind. And after that, life in the Fianna got back to normal. The lad of the skins was dead, and when he heard of it, Conan was greatly pleased by the news. And of course, the King of the Floods was now also dead, so the Fianna now enjoyed the Cauldron of Plenty unchallenged. Yet another piece of magical loot they held, and Fionn's power was greater than ever. The seasons changed. Fionn was at the fort at Almu. He was asleep, because it was the middle of the night precisely midnight, in fact, when a visitor had knocked on the fortress door. Guards came to wake their leader. Worried guards. Guards who had been quite convinced that this wouldn't wait till morning. There's someone here for you, Fionn, they said, apologetically after waking him up. He says you owe him wages. Wages? said Fionn, blinking. I've paid all my wages on time. I am only owing wages to one man, and he is not able to claim them. And on that point, Fionn was wrong, for the lad of the skins stood in the fortress along with his wife. Though he wore no skins now, but as handsome and fine an outfit as Fionn had ever seen. Despite everything he'd seen, Fionn was shocked. This was that one step further than he expected. Death, it seemed, was no obstacle to this son of the King of Pleasure. Unbeknownst to Fionn, it had been. He could die. Fionn was not to know, but he owed his return to that daughter of Mananon MacLear. She had not given up on her husband. She had sailed that boat to an island far to the west, a place where there are a great many strange islands, which I may tell you more of at some point. On the particular island to which she headed was a forest, and in that forest was a small hidden spring. It was not remarkable to look at, but its waters were a promise of new beginnings. So carefully she poured that spring water onto the broken body of the bird, waited a few moments, breath held within her. And then its wings had fluttered and its eyes had opened, and she had embraced her husband. And now the couple had returned to Ireland. It was to be for one last time. Fionn paid over the wages that were due to the lad of the skins, who no longer wore his skins. Kirtak in turn thanked Fionn, though it was hard to really understand what for. But Fionn kept the cauldron, and the two left Ireland behind. Their story was, I'm sure, not at an end here, but here's where they leave the story of Fionn and the Fiona, 
having interacted with it so briefly and to such a dramatic extent. And Fionn and Conan both were very relieved by them leaving. And that's the story. But I think there is a post-credit sequence. In some grand room in some non-specific place, a messenger approaches a figure in a chair whose face is hidden from us by dint of him facing away. We hear the voice of the occupant upon receiving the message though. The King of the Floods. Really? And what of the cauldron? Who has it now? A whispered response. Fionn McCool. How very interesting. The scene fades and the full credits roll. And that's the story of The Lad of the Skins, a tale that poses more questions than it has answers to. So I've got quite a bit to say here on the background to this story, as it is a surprisingly complex one compared to most of the tales I tell. Firstly, just a general reminder of where the stories of Fionn McCool that are in circulation today come from. There are essentially two fairly separate sources. The first being Irish manuscripts written down over a series of many centuries, the first possibly as early as the 7th century, with the bulk being between the 10th and 14th centuries. There's a lot of stories written down in these sources, many of which were preserved by monks, but some were more secular documents. But as well as this manuscript tradition, which itself evolved over time, Fionn McCall was kept alive and well in oral storytelling. In Ireland, of course, but also notably in Scotland, particularly Gaelic-speaking Scotland. Now, these oral tales circulated for centuries in this format, and sometimes they were written down on and off in this period, where some of our tales come from, and eventually in the 19th and 20th centuries, there was more concerted effort to collect and write down these oral folk tales, as of course there was for a lot of folk tales. And these written down stories from the 19th and 20th century form another sizable bulk of the Fenian tradition. I actually think it's quite impressive that stories about Fionn were circulating so long like this. Now, they weren't necessarily the same stories as they had been a few hundred years ago, but what this does prove is that these stories were super popular and survived for a very long time with no authoritative text, simply kept alive by storytellers who may have changed them, but fundamentally kept a lot of similarities of these characters over hundreds of years. Now, because there are so many stories, many contradictory, to give form to the Fenian cycle, a number of people have tried to put them in a chronology to make the kind of wider story of Fion and his life flow as a coherent whole. It's worth saying that this is a complete construct formed by moulding, cherry-picking and standardising stories that weren't really told or written down like that. Now, this is both something that happened in older manuscripts and much more so in the modern ones. In my own telling of the Fenian Cycle, I, like many others, am largely following off the work of Lady Augusta Gregory, an important Irish dramatist and theatre owner, and important figure in the Irish literary revival at the end of the 19th century and start of the 20th. She organised a large selection of tales into a linear-ish story in her book, Gods and Fighting Men, in which she also did the same for some of the other Irish myth cycles, kind of helping to cement the idea of the cycles, in fact, which is only one way of understanding Irish myth as a whole. And Lady Gregory does indeed tell a version of this story in that book. 
But that story is not quite the same as the one I've just told you. And you know I often tweak a little bit with stories here and there and combine versions. But this story is a somewhat unusual one, at least in the Fenian cycle, because it comes down predominantly not from those manuscripts, but from the oral stories collected largely in the 19th and 20th century. And there are a lot of versions of this story, of the Lad of the Skins, or as it's often referred to as a whole, the Kirtak story. Renowned folklorist Alan Bruford knew of 116 versions from Ireland and 12 from Scotland, and work by Dr Natasha Sumner has found even more since then. Bruford goes as far to say that this story is the most popular Fenian folktale. In some ways I find that odd given the Fenian's role on the sidelines, which is even more exaggerated in some versions of the story where they barely appear. But this tale was clearly one that was enjoyed by a lot of people. Now the first record of a story at all like it goes back to about the 15th century, with actual quite similar stories cropping up really only in the 18th century. But it's not just that there are a lot of tellings of the tale, that's fairly common. It's that within those tellings there are many wildly different versions of the Kirtak tale. And I do mean incredibly so. The presence of the character Kirtak or the Lad of the Skins is one of the most common variants, but even then, it's not a given. There are versions of this story where he has a different name, or names are mixed around in at least one version. He is Blackbird. I don't have time to go through all the variations, but I really do want to give you a flavour of it, because the version I've told you is actually one of the shorter ones, at least in terms of the events that happen, rather than maybe the words used to tell it, because I've gone on a bit as per usual. So in many versions of the tale, the Fianna send the Lad of the Skins out on not just one, but a number of different quests, all to try and get him killed. In other versions, his rival is his brother, and the two make up at the end after both being resurrected. In a lot of versions of the tale, the person who resurrects him isn't his wife, but his mother, and in some cases he is given an elaborate backstory, such as he is the son of the King of the Greeks, or the King of the Western World, or the King of the French. In some versions, Kirtak nails his love rival's hand to an anvil. In a number, he's revived twice, before meeting the Fianna and after. In many others, there are huge extended sequences, longer than this entire story that I've just told you, about those other tasks. Ones involving Fionn's encounters with various different hags. Some kind of difficult to kill bull is often involved, and some versions have the retrieval of a drinking horn, which never runs dry, much like the cauldron. All these different versions are, of course, mixed and matched between different tellings. Just to give you a few more, the cauldron is often with a number of different figures. The King of the Floods doesn't even seem to crop up that often. It's often with the King of Norway, or a Queen of a Mountain. In many versions, of course, the cauldron isn't even mentioned. There's a whole host of those weird and wonderful of characters, as I'm going to call them. The Hag of Slaughter, the King of Pleasure, the King of the Floods. All without very much explanation. And the thing is, a lot of these alterations really change how this fundamentally fits together as a story. If it's his wife bringing him back to life, that's very different from his mother bringing him back. In some cases, there's no rivalry about love at all. And in some cases, no resurrection. In some cases, the lad is actively working against the Fina and their warriors. He really sticks it to Conan in some of them. But by contrast, in some, he marries Fionn's granddaughter. In quite a wildly different version, Fionn's wife, who in most tellings doesn't exist, fancies the Lad of the Skins, and she tries to get Fionn killed, 
but eventually she herself is executed. So, I'll say it again, these tales are radically different, and there are a lot of them. Sumner makes reference to the vibrancy of the storytelling tradition around this tale, and I am right there with her. One thing I am amused to note, Bruford does say that none of the versions seem to have a convincing explanation of why the Lad of the Skins is with the Fiona, though. Apart from maybe that he really likes hunting, which, as Bruford acknowledges, is not a very narratively satisfying explanation. And in my telling, I decided to retain that long tradition of not knowing why he's there. Now, the existence of all these stories is, in my mind, a good warning of the dangers of overanalyzing very specific plot points of old stories, and particularly in seeing details of those stories to be representative of something from the dim and distant past. What I mean is the reading of metaphors or creating elaborate ideas of ancient rituals just from the texts of old stories. Because, clearly, these stories are subject to huge changes. Any conclusions you might draw would radically alter depending on which version is being told. It would be quite easy to build elaborate theories on early Irish religion off the existence of the King of the Floods. But he's not even in most versions. The fact is that storytellers are clearly doing a lot with these tales themselves, changing them round, combining them with other tales, from Irish mythology and almost certainly from elsewhere as well. And this leads to the great variation and proliferation of the tales that we see. Now, despite me drawing that conclusion, those of you who want to hold on to that idea that you can read the distant past through stories might be interested to know that Alan Bruford, a very renowned folklorist who knew this story very well, would probably disagree with me, as he tries to do what I've just described. He picks up on the name Blackbird, which is not in all versions, but pick up on it he does, and says, quote, The last name suggests something much more primitive than a hero tale. The resurrection of Kirtak, which with the story ends, is reminiscent of the material of Mummer's plays, and it may be that the story was either founded on or confused with some seasonal myth. End quote. So, I might be wrong there. Anyway, Bruford also suggests that there could have been an early manuscript or literary tradition of this tale which has been lost, but even if it was, that doesn't mean that it wasn't still getting changed around a lot. For instance, Dr Natasha Sumner writes about three versions collected in Nova Scotia, of all places, that had differences from any of those collected in Scotland or Ireland. So, what we know about this tale is it continued to change, and be very popular. Now, on top of all of these versions of the tale, I should probably also mention that there is an Irish folk or fairy tale named Lad of the Goatskins, which tells a different story with no mention of the Fianna. It's much more like a lot of common European folk stories or fairy stories, because the name Lad of the Skins was clearly popular as one for a general hero, and used for a number of different tales with no relation to this one. In fact, in at least one manuscript, Fionn McCool is said to have been known as the Lad of the Skins. So what I really wanted to emphasise with this entire discussion section is that there's a hell of a lot going on with this story. As for the story you have just heard, more so than most of my tellings, it's a unique version of the tale. Given how much it's been changed around with over the centuries, I felt much more free to combine versions from what I liked than I do with most stories. But I did leave out a lot of the more repetitive elements or bits that really would make this too long given my verbose storytelling style. 
That said, this version does track pretty closely to Lady Gregory's version, and I mostly only used extra details from some of the other versions I read to enhance her telling. And I say Lady Gregory's version because she herself mashed together a few different folk versions to achieve a similar goal to myself, shortening it, simplifying it, and making it more related to the Fianna. Just so you know, I read eight versions of this tale, I didn't read all those 130-odd, and I included bits in there from four of those tales, with the other four really just being too radically different to integrate. A fairy mother and races against the Fianna and that kind of thing. I've linked all the stories that I've used and read on the website. But I think the bit in this telling that was uniquely me is emphasising how awful the main character really is. And this seems to apply to his actions in almost all the versions of the tale I read. Yet even the ones where he nails Londu's hand to the anvil paint him and Fionn McCool as the good guys, or at least are solidly neutral on the matter. Yes, there are some versions of the story that try more successfully to justify their actions. Make their opponents more evil, for instance. But most versions do not, despite the fact that, yes, the bit about the king and the queen being smashed together until they died, I did not make that up. But a lot of the stories just seem to treat them as heroes, like their homelander or something. So yes, I realised about halfway through writing this episode that the lad of the skins is definitely the bad guy, or at least a bad guy, and I told the story as such. And if it's offended you that I have treated a bloodthirsty killer in such a simplistic moral way, well, sorry for shoving wokeness down your throat, political correctness, gone mad, and all of that. And on that note, I'm going to leave it there. Hopefully you've got a bit of an idea where this story comes from. It was once a widespread, very popular tale, but it's not really well known these days, even in terms of Fenian stories, where it languishes as a relatively minor player, probably because of that lack of Fionn's central involvement. But I really wanted to tell it, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Right, so before I sign off, probably obvious to anyone who is waiting for this episode to release, I am struggling to produce episodes at a decent rate at the moment. If you're a long-term listener, you'll know that as always, this does go up and down. I'm actually super hopeful the next one will be quicker, but I'm not promising anything. As for the subject of that one, I'm a bit undecided yet. It might be an adventuring saint story. I do need to do murder ballads at some point. Not quite sure where I'm going to go with that one yet, but you'll find out hopefully soon enough. If you want more in between, I am doing some more shorter form stuff on TikTok with some regularity now and seeing if that works. So you can go there, check me out, see my face. Ugh. I'm also doing the shorter TikTok videos cross-posted to Instagram, if anyone wants to go there. I still have a Patreon, and while I'm not as active as I like on there, the beauty of that is that you only get charged when I make extra episodes. There are seven there currently, and I'm working on the eighth right now. A second mermaid story, so there'll be two mermaid stories on the Patreon, and none on the main feed. That will be released sometime soonish. Thank you so much for all the patrons for sticking with me, and a shout out this month to Amy, Emily, Freya and Francine, who have joined since the last episode. And of course, thank you to everyone who writes reviews, and those of you who just listen. I will say again that the best way to help me out for free is to recommend this podcast to others, or leaving a review, and I really appreciate anyone who's done that. I realise today's story has been a little different, I hope you've enjoyed, I do intend to get back to the Fenian stories more regularly going forward. Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time for whatever delights that may bring.
You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Mm-hmm.